Welcome to the Indie Matters podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Joey Lovato, the producer and editor of the podcast. On this week's two-part episode, our education reporter Jackie Valley sits down with Trevor Hayes, a Nevada System of Higher Education Board of Regents member. And while he may focus on higher education in his job, in his personal life, his daughter Ellie struggles with dyslexia. Jackie has been doing some reporting on dyslexia and sits down with Trevor to talk about how he is helping his daughter learn to read. In the second part of the episode, we switch gears and new reporter Jacob Solis sits down with Jackie to talk about his extensive reporting digging into Governor Steve Sislak's campaign donations. He breaks down campaign finance for us and explains who, where, and how much money was donated to Sisolak during his run for governor. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan journalism, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships for the podcast and events. The sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of the Indie Matters podcast is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association. I'm Jackie Valley, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Jacob Solis, and our guest, Trevor Hayes, who is a regent with the Nevada System of Higher Education. But we're not necessarily here to talk about higher education. We're here to discuss a learning process that takes place far earlier, and that's learning how to read. Trevor's seven-year-old daughter, Ellie, was recently diagnosed with dyslexia, which makes reading and spelling difficult. The diagnosis has set him on a mission to expand services and improve the way reading is taught, in Nevada specifically. Trevor, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jackie. Can you tell us a little bit about Ellie and when you first realized she was struggling to read? Yeah, I mean, Ellie is, I mean, I, I'm obviously biased. I'm, I'm a dad, but she's a neat kid. She's very outgoing and has a vocabulary that far exceeds her age. And it was always we've always gotten positive feedback from her teachers that she's doing very well. And we had a parent-teacher conference in October in her first grade class. And the teacher said, look, Ellie may be the smartest kid in the class and she can't read. There's something going on. So we mentioned it to the school. We go to a small um, Catholic private school, and they ran a couple of tests, and they have a resource teacher who said, look, we aren't qualified to diagnose dyslexia, but that's really what we think it is. You need to go get her diagnosed. And they referred us to a place here that had a year-long waiting list. And so we ended up having to go to Los Angeles and and got her diagnosed there and found out that she does indeed have dyslexia. How do you explain dyslexia to other parents or people not familiar with it? Because it, for a while, I think, was viewed as this mysterious condition. It, it is. And a lot of people think of you just read things backward or that you get your B's and D's mixed up. And certainly that is one symptom of dyslexia. But the bigger thing is they have, from, from what I've read, and I'm, I'm no scientist, so someone can go research and know more than I do. But from what I've been able to make out is, they read with different parts of their brain. They, they've hooked up brains of dyslexics and non-dyslexics and watched the parts that fire when they read. And there's very different parts in dyslexic people when they read than when we read. Um, some have said that they're more right-side readers and they read kind of in a whole picture as opposed to the small component parts of a word. One example I like to give is say the word cap. Ellie could read cap really well, but make it clasp. And she has a hard time with the blending of the cluh and the spa, and the whole thing just kind of gets lumped together, and she'll start guessing words. And unfortunately, the way reading is taught a lot in this country is they teach them to guess. They teach them to look for the context of the sentence or for pictures, because particularly in you know kindergarten, first and second grade, there's pictures with the with the words. And, and so she would guess a lot. 
when she got tested, she she tested very high and way above grade level in math and all these other areas of vocabulary. And for reading, she was only about a half a grade behind. You know, this is about the middle of first grade, and she was in the kindergarten level. But the the, the resource teacher at the school, who again said she wasn't qualified to say dyslexia, said, "I think she's guessing. She's very smart because her IQ tested very high. She's good at guessing in context and looking at pictures." She's like, "When I just put words in isolation, she couldn't read them." Yeah. So I imagine you go to Southern California, you get this diagnosis, and as a parent, that must be. Frightening in some ways that your daughter, who's so bright and probably eager to attend the school, is all of a sudden struggling and needs help. What were your next steps? The funny thing for us is it wasn't frightening at first because we're like, oh, dyslexia. We've heard about that for years. Should be very easy to treat, remediate, whatever the problem. Like, that's something they figured out. There's, you know, you hear about all these famous people who are dyslexic. And, you know, we've been hearing about dyslexia my whole life. I'm like, oh, that should be easy. The frightening part is, even in between the, the first with the school saying we think dyslexia and the official diagnosis is us starting to look around, one, to find people that could actually diagnose her here in Las Vegas. And there's only a handful and they all have extremely long waiting lists. And then finding people to help remediate and teach her how to read. That's the most frightening part. So we were right in one aspect that dyslexia has been diagnosed and, and, and identified for decades. And there are simple solutions to fix it. The problem is they aren't available in Las Vegas. So you ultimately did find a reading tutor, though. I uh, recently attended uh, one of Ellie's tutoring sessions, and it was really an eye-opening experience because, you know, it wasn't like her sitting with a book going word by word. It was very immersive, and um, she was actually using colored sand to spell some of the words on a cookie tray and uh, just all different methods to really get her involved using multisensory techniques, hearing, sight, movement. Can you tell us, a, it's actually part of a concept called the Orton-Gillingham approach to teaching reading. Um, it's been around for decades, but it's really well known in the world of dyslexia. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you've seen Ellie progress since she began this tutoring a few months ago? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the problems I hear when I talk to other parents is I've kind of tapped into this network of parents of kids who have dyslexia or other, or other learning challenges, that a lot of times what they'll do is they'll say, okay, your kid has... And apparently the school district here, and we're not in the school district, so I, I don't know exactly how it works there, but a lot of them have told me, at least anecdotally, that they will then say, okay, yes, your kid has reading problems. They don't like to say dyslexia. Okay. But they move them into a small group of, you know, anywhere from one teacher to two or three or four kids and teach them to read the same way that they were being taught to read in the big classroom. And it isn't how the dyslexic brains work. So yeah, Orton Gillingham was invented almost 100 years ago to help stroke survivors relearn how to read and, and make their brains work. And they figured out some decades later that it worked great for dyslexic kids. It gets those other parts of the brains firing and creates these connections between the brain that just aren't naturally there in dyslexic kids. So, you know, from what I've been able to make out, and I've read a lot over the last six, nine months, that this style of teaching, I mean, Orton Gillingham's kind of the the first of them, and there's been offshoots of them, and and I'm no expert to say which offshoot's better, if Orton Gillingham's better, but they all kind of go with the same approach of very intense phenome and phonics-based and multisensory, and uh, it's, it's worked great with her. She is reading so much better. She still tells us she can't read, and then we see her reading to her brother, or she'll read a sign at a restaurant, and we'll say, Ellie, you got to stop saying you can't read. We understand 
you you have dyslexia. And she understands that she, she's <laughs> such a bright kid that she gets it. She doesn't feel any stigma with it. She just knows it's a challenge she has that she sees differently is how she thinks of it. But it's helped. She's able to read things now. She's not up to grade level yet, but she's feeling more confident in it, I think. Well, she was doing fabulous the day I observed her, and she was eager and seemed like she was having fun while she was there. <laughs> she does have fun. It's, it's so funny. We, the, the, the neuropsychologist we went to in Los Angeles, like a month ago, she said to me, she goes, hey, can we go back and see her? I was like, well, we don't need to. We got the diagnosis from her. She did, she said, but yeah, that, that was so fun. <laughs> so, I mean, some of this stuff is fun, and it makes learning and, and reading fun for the kids. And you touched on this earlier. I mean, in the education world, there's been this ongoing debate for years and years and years about the best way to teach reading. And sometimes you hear that there's really two schools of thought. There's this phonics-based approach where you're learning the components of a word and the, the sounds that make up a word. And then there's something called the whole language approach, which is basically what it sounds like, where the idea being that if you're immersed in around language and books, you'll get to know those words and they'll become ingrained in your memory. As a parent now with a student who has dyslexia, where do you fall in this debate? I mean, I clearly fall on the phonics side. I mean, as I've read about whole word, you know, a lot of it is they say that they won't understand the meaning behind things if they don't understand the whole word and they just learn the, the, the pieces of the word. Ellie's vocabulary tests 10 years older than she is. She understands the words. She can't read the words. So it doesn't work for her. And you know, and, and from, I've heard, again, anecdotally stories of a kid reading a word or reading a, a page and there's, you know, the word horse and they'll look at it first and they'll say house and the teacher will say, oh, no, try again, look for clues. And they'll look at the picture and they'll say, oh, pony. And the teacher will say, yes, that's right. That's not learning to read. The word was not pony. House was actually closer than pony. And in whole word, a lot of times they want them to understand the meaning behind the passage they're reading and build the reading comprehension. I think one of the problems that we have, and there's a lot of research on this, there's a lot of scientific evidence now, and you know, the, the education community, like others, are slow to adopt new things. But um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry about that. Well, I think maybe where you were heading is uh, what role higher education plays in this. Because when I was reporting the story, I talked to you and met Ellie and interviewed a variety of other folks. There was some consensus in the advocate community that we maybe need to rethink how we're teaching reading and that maybe teachers aren't as well-equipped as they should be. As a regent, you know, that's probably particularly close to your heart now. What well, is? I mean, I, I love higher ed. That's why I ran for regent. It, it changed my life, um, changed the trajectory of my life and, and my branch and my family trees. Um, but as a regent, our role is more setting policy and governance and not getting into the specifics of what's being taught in each academic department. So it's not necessarily my role to tell the education department, here's how you're going to teach reading. Um, I think the evidence is clear out there that this is the way to teach reading. I mean, you talk to teachers around the Valley and other places, they weren't taught how to teach reading. You know, Beth Moore, who's an Orton-Gillingham fellow who's coming out this summer to teach a class uh, to teachers, says a lot of times at the end of her class, people say, thank you. I've been teaching, you know, first grade for 20 years, and no one had ever taught me how to teach a kid to read. A lot of what we expect is, oh, this is where I was going earlier, is we think it's natural to learn to read, and a lot of the whole word community believes it's a natural function, but it's not. You know, if you think back through evolution, yes, learning to walk is something that we've evolved to do, learning to see, learning to talk. You can hear that. 
reading is not a natural function that's part of evolution. If, you know, if there was some sort of apocalypse and the, you know, computers and books and everything went away and we were left to fend for ourselves, kids would still be born learning how to walk, learning how to talk because they would hear it. But they wouldn't naturally learn how to read. If they just saw a book in front of them, they wouldn't do it. We have to use these evidence-based scientific approaches to here's the best way to read. And the kicker to it all is if every kid, say kindergarten through third grade, was taught to reach in some sort of Orton-Gillingham approach, it could be one of the offshoots of it, it doesn't hurt any of the other kids who aren't dyslexic. They would learn to read at the same speed, would help the dyslexic kids, and would help some of the other kids that have other learning disabilities or just struggle to learn to read for other reasons. And we would capture such a large percentage of the people who don't read. You know, we just heard during the legislative session that if they stuck with the don't promote kids who can't read by three, that 29% of kids would be held back. Estimates are that kids with dyslexia make up 10 to 20% of the population. Let's even call it the middle of that. That's half of the kids who would not have been promoted. That's half of the 29% who can't read. Why wouldn't we go to this simple approach? that would be easy for teachers to learn. They can learn it in you know, a few weeks over a summer. They implement it into the kindergarten through third grade classrooms, and every kid would start to learn to read. And you can read further research that shows, I mean, I, I, I'm skeptical when I see big numbers, but I did see a study that said that 50% of prison inmates have dyslexia. Is that high? I don't know. Let's call it 25%. That's still an outrageous number. And if you think about it, by the time you get to junior high or high school, if you can't read, you're not going to be motivated to show up to class. You're not, you know, you're talking a foreign language basically. So you drop out. You don't have a lot of opportunities economically. Crime seems like a logical thing to do. You know, and it seems like if reading doesn't come naturally to us, then teaching it must not come naturally either. Hence, right? Maybe the need for a little bit more preparation in that regard. You, you would think. I mean. They say it's very important for, you know, we've talked about alternative paths to licensure and whatnot over the years, and they've really improved that here in Clark County or at least given new avenues. But they say it's important to have four years of education college to learn how to teach, and and they've missed out on this. And it's not just UNLV or UNR or Nevada State College. It's nationally. There are a handful of districts I've, I've found in just researching on the Internet, four or five around the country, that have gone to this method, and no district the size of ours has done it, but where every teacher learns an Orton-Gillingham approach to teaching reading. And the, the numbers, I mean, one district showed throughout their schools, whether it was the, the, um, the lower income schools or the higher income schools, it was a 30 plus percent increase in reading ability, 30 percentage points. 30 percentage points. I mean, these are schools that had 30 percent readers in some of the the, the low-performing schools jumped up into the 60s or some of them were 70s or 80s. Even the high-performing schools were jumping. Why wouldn't we go to this? Yeah. You know, and you're on a mission to change that here locally. You mentioned this earlier. You're part of a effort to bring a two-week training course here. Tell us more about that, who's joining, and what you hope to get out of it or what you hope others get out of it. So like I said earlier when you asked, was it frightening when we learned about dyslexia? And I said, no, the frightening part was when we figured out there were no resources, and there are so few Orton Gillingham or even some of the other approach trained tutors or professionals here in town. And we were lucky we found one, um, but there's so few of them and they're, they're very expensive. And I said, you know, like I said just a minute ago, I think every teacher should learn this and teach this way of reading. And we have so few in this town. I, I was very lucky through a, a friend of a friend to connect with Dana Blackhurst, the husband of Jan Jones Blackhurst, the former mayor who works at Caesars. 
he's dyslexic and runs a school for gifted dyslexic kids in South Carolina. And he's pretty expert on this issue. And he started putting me in touch with national experts in the field and kind of guided me through the through the process to learn more about it. I, you know, I was a couple of months in and kind of lost and he kind of helped redirect me. And he said, and he and I were talking, I said, I wish there was a way to bring more um, education to town and that the t- there were teachers and tutors here. And he goes, I got somebody. He's like, you know, here's what it's going to cost. Here's what we need to do. She can do 16 teachers two weeks in July. And I said, great. So where do we get the money? Well, that was on me. So <laughs> we went out and I was so lucky that there were some great companies and people in this town that stepped up and said, yeah, we'll throw in 1000 We'll throw in 3000 We were able to raise enough money. The the cost of the course is $1,000. And so Beth Moore, she's a, a Orton-Gillingham fellow through the Association of Gordon, Orton-Gillingham Practitioners and something, educators, <laughs> um, the National Association. She said normally they don't even have time to get a flyer together to promote these things in other towns, and they fill up at $1,000 a piece. Wow. We got a flyer together. We put it out, and a month went by, and we had one person signed up. So I got on the phone, and I started raising money, and we got enough to lower the price to $500. I got one, maybe two others had signed up at that point. And one of them got – there were three signed up, but one of them had gotten a, a grant from someone else to pay. And so I'm like, man, what are we going to do here? You know, this class has started – this is Maine, middle of May now, and this class is supposed to start in July. Went out and raised more money and got it down to $250, and then the class filled up. What do you think it was initially? Was it that lack of awareness or was it a financial barrier for some of these folks? I don't know. It's 1000 for the course and then if you pay 200 extra, you get three graduate credits. To me, $1,200 for three graduate credits all condensed into two weeks seems like a good deal. The only thing I can come up with is just a lack of awareness. You know, Some feedback I got was, um, can, is there an online version or isn't there like a one or two day version? Um, you know, some people would say, oh, you know, I'm going to a conference this summer and, and they'll touch on dyslexia. I don't think people understand that, you know, it, to me, it doesn't seem like a long time to spend 60 hours over a two week period to learn this. But you know, look, it's their summer. I mean, it's, you know, teachers work really hard during the year. And I don't think they had the awareness to see the value it would have. And I think that's the the hardest part is I, I thoroughly believe that most teachers want to do the best by their students. That's why they're in it. It's certainly not the money. They're passionate about it. They just had never been educated. You know, so many teachers I've talked to said, yeah, we talked about learning disabilities in education college. It was one class period, and we touched on all of them in you know the 45 minutes. They just don't know what they don't know. I mean, shoot, I didn't know anything in October. So I just don't think they understood or understand enough. So I'm hoping this one goes so well that these 16 people we train – tell all their friends at their schools and the community about what a great experience they had and that I've got people calling me all through August saying, when is the next one? Well, it'll be fascinating to see what happens. Good luck with it, Trevor. And if you want more information about dyslexia or Trevor's mission to spread more awareness about it in Nevada, visit thenevadaindependent.com. We ran a story earlier this month. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jackie. I appreciate it. For part two of our podcast, we're going to move from talking about children to talking about the crazy world of campaign finance. Jacob spent months and months crunching numbers tirelessly to look at everyone who donated money to Democrat Steve Sisolak in his bid for governor over the past year or two. 
And since 2017. Since 2017. Um, so in the end, he found that Sisolak raised more than $11.3 million during that time. And nearly all of it, $11.1 million, came from large contributions of $200 or more. Jacob, tell us about some of the big takeaways you found after this whole project. So the biggest takeaway is really the way that big campaigns are funded in Nevada. So there are campaign finance limits on the amount a single contribution can be, and that's $10,000. $5,000 for a general, $5,000 for a primary. That's per donor if you're a corporation, a person, a union, whatever. The thing is, is in Nevada, and in most places, the way that large corporations could get around this is that they're not... When, when you're talking about MGM, for instance, there is not just MGM Resorts International. There are dozens of subsidiary companies, and these can be everything from a property like New York, New York, to a random LLC that is a holding company used to buy land if they wanted to build something. And they'll use all of these companies, or as many as they want, to donate tens of thousands of dollars in a single day. Um, and that's completely legal because each individual donor is still just one company. You know, mm. there is no limit for a parent company on which one of their LLCs can donate and which ones can't. So in Sisolak's case, we see donors like MGM Resorts International, we see Station Casinos, and we see individuals like Billy Walters. So in Steve Sisolak's case, we have these mega donors like MGM Resorts International and the Fertitta family slash Station Casinos donating you know, up some something like $350,000 or $180,000 over the course of two years. And th those individual sums are huge. I mean, it's it's in the context of almost more than $11 million, one or two or 3%, which is quite a lot at the end of the day. So Sisolak is obviously a Democrat, but were there any surprises in who was donating? Were there any prominent Republicans that poured money his way? Yeah, so the biggest one, and I mentioned a little bit, was the Fertitta family slash station casinos. They've been big Republican boosters. And you can even look back, and I didn't cover this in the story, from when Adam Laxalt, who was Sisolak's Republican opponent in 2018, from when he took office in uh, 2014 to the end of 2017, the Fertitta family and station casinos properties gave him roughly $100,000. And that money stopped after 2017. But because more or less the 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 entire company switched focus and started giving Sisolak money instead. And at the end of the day, they gave him $180,000. And so it's interesting, one, the, the overall spending is simply interesting that they would give both candidates in this very high-profile right. so much money. And uh, they did stop giving money to, to Laxalt at a certain point and, and completely switch gears. But this is, this is where campaign finance gets messy where at a certain point, these large corporations are donating to a lot of people, they're donating to a lot of candidates, and they're donating to a lot of PACs. And at a certain point, they lose control of the money going to these PACs. And one of the most interesting things in the story, I think, was $100,000 that stations gave to a PAC that a year after they gave them the money, started running attack ads against Steve Sisolak at the same time that stations is pouring, you know, almost $200,000 into Sisolak's huh. campaign. And that's just... It's, it's illustrative of the way that so much money is being poured into it that even these giant corporations that, are, that have become mega donors themselves don't have much control. To answer your question, the one usual suspect that did exactly what we thought they would was, was the Las Vegas Sands, owned by Sheldon Adelson, very big Republican mega donor, did not give Steve Sisolak that much money. I believe it was $20,000 in total from the Sands. Not surprising. No, not surprising. Despite that, though, didn't Sisolak break some fundraising records in the Yes. State? So 
There's an argument to be made that the fundraising record would have been broken anyways. So the last competitive race we can look at is in 2010. In 2010, Sandoval raised about $5 million. And so we would expect that obviously in the eight years intervening, there would be an increase. But going from 5 million to almost 12 is quite a jump. And even Adam Laxalt himself raised more than 8 million. And all of that is just personal money raised. That's not counting, you know, tens of millions of PAC spending that also went into the race. So yeah, I think we can say with certainty that there there hasn't been a race that that has exceeded uh, the, the 28 contest. Caveat being, I, I did not account for inflation. So okay, you know, right. Caveat emptor. Well, if we're talking about the difference from 2010 to 2018. I mean, there is a new industry in town, relatively new, and that's marijuana. Can you talk a little bit about what role they played in donations this time around? That's right. So the marijuana industry, compared to other industries like gaming or real estate, did contribute a lot, but relatively little. So they contributed uh, about $750,000 overall, which is nothing to sneeze at. What's interesting about the marijuana industry, though, is that Almost all of their contributions went to the governor, not to legislators. So as part of this months-long data project, they've also been looking at legislative campaign finance. And the marijuana industry gave legislators almost nothing. Versus his select, they give, you know, three-quarters of a million dollars, led by uh, a California-based MedMen. They own a couple dispensaries sort of around the country. They gave $80,000. And the, the industry itself, I mean... On the one hand, it's just interesting that they would give Sisolak so much money in the first place, but it makes sense because who is the keeper of the keys, so to speak, but the governor. So the governor controls the tax department, who are the ones creating the rules that govern the marijuana industry in the first place. And Sisolak was vocal on the campaign trail about reforms for the marijuana industry, which between its inception in 2017 and the election in 2018 um, was criticized for a certain lack of transparency that existed in, uh, around the, the existing regulatory scheme. And we are in Nevada, so I assume gaming played a huge role in his fundraising as well. But are there other industries that were heavy hitters in this as well? Yes. Yeah, so the two biggest heavy hitters outside of gaming were the were business interests and real estate companies. So there were multiple real estate companies, especially holding companies, that gave tens of thousands of dollars. I think the the biggest one technically was Billy Walters. And that's he's in jail for a insider trading scheme right now, but that's more or less related to his personal relationship with Sisolak. Um, but his companies are real estate companies. But outside of that, it, a lot of that has to do with where is Steve Sisolak coming from? And being a county commissioner for so long in Las Vegas, you don't get to be a county commissioner without being friends with real estate developers. And so that's not really much of a surprise. But the degree to which they gave, you know, over, if I'm remembering correctly, it's $2 million. And if it's not, Joey, cut this out. But the degree to which they gave is what's surprising, that, you know, they are the the second or third largest group, single industry that gave Sisolak money. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I remember a few months ago, maybe, gosh, six months ago at this point, um, Senator, well, now Senator Jackie Rosen came under fire for supposedly, you know, fundraising too much in California. What did that look like in uh, Steve Sisolak's uh, donation spreadsheets? What was the in-state versus out-of-state spread? So the the spread was actually pretty narrow. More than 80% of Sisolak's donations came from Nevada, something like 2,000 and change from Nevada and then another 1,000 from around the country. 
And basically the breakdown is like 82% Nevada and then like 6% California, 6% New York, and then a smattering of every state but a few in the Midwest. Though if we broaden it outside of just a $200 limit, he did receive donations, I believe, from every state in the union. But what's interesting about that is, you're right, that this narrative of Californication um, that the, the Republicans latched onto late in the general election, where we saw ads run by PACs favoring Adam Laxalt, which criticized um, Sisolak for this sort of turning Nevada into California. But where it sort of stuck to Rosen, who actually did go to California to fundraise with Jane Fonda, which created a Republican field day, it, I don't... The, the messaging was interesting because they, they did try the same attacks against Sisolak. But as far as we can tell from the data, whereas Rosen may have raised, based on federal finance data, somewhere around 20 to 25 percent of her funds from California, Sisolak only raised about 6 or 7 percent. Could you tell that it looked like these were wealthy people just in various states? Or were some of them maybe just family, friends, relatives living elsewhere? So this is really interesting. And this goes to the way that the Democrats have financed their campaigns in the sort of last five years. And a lot of it comes from the uh, mobile fundraising platforms like ActBlue, where, you know, people can very easily just using their phone donate to any Democrat around the country. And Sisolak, less so than a candidate like Rosen, is still the beneficiary of something like that, where someone in New York can just see there is a competitive governor's race in Nevada. I want to donate 50 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever you want. And so it's very easy just in 2019 or 2018 uh, to, to donate to whoever you want. And so there is a lot of that. There is also a lot of big money donors. So you see, you know, businessmen from California. Um, one of them was um, Dean Spanos, who owns the Los Angeles Chargers, gave Sisolak, I believe, $10,000 or $5,000. You also see mega donors like Tom Steyer and his wife donating that much money, Michael Bloomberg donating that much money. And so, yeah, you there's there's a mix. There's a mix of normal people who are just like, there's a Democrat in Nevada who's in a tight race, I'm going to give them money, and the big donors who say the same thing. Now, personal question, how did you keep your sanity digging through all these numbers for months on end? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I literally have no idea, and it's all a blur now. But I'm glad it's mm -hmm. over because it, it, was, it, was it was a beautiful moment when I stood back from the spreadsheet and was finally finished. Because for the intrepid listener, the way this was done was when you access um, data from the Secretary of State's website, which does keep um, expansive records um, on campaign finance, we had to sort all of those records by industry and by address. And so we had to go in donation by donation and mark, is this business? Is this real estate? Is this marijuana? And that's what took months. <laughs> but once it's done, it, it gives this broad, broad picture of exactly where is the money coming from in a campaign that ultimately cost, just on the direct level, more than $11 million. Well, his story is certainly a wealth of information, pun intended. Um, it's also available on the NevadaIndependent.com. And thank you, Jacob, for enlightening us all about uh, Steve Sislak's fundraising over the last couple of years. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank Trevor Hayes, Jackie Valley, and Jacob Solis for being on this week's episode. If you'd like to hear more of the podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you listen. You can also catch us on KWNK 97.7 Reno on Sundays at 5 p.m. And just a final reminder that next week is the 100th episode of Indie Matters. So if you want to ask us any questions that we can answer on the podcast, you can email me at joey at We'll take your questions up until Monday, June 17th. 
Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.